0: of our favorite bands back in the 80s and 90s used to have an EP. Do you remember
1: that? I do, actually. I remember probably the most famous EP for me was the Guns N' Roses sophomore one, like After Appetite for Destruction, which was like really grungy. And I guess grungy is the wrong word. But really, you know, hard and heavy metal and yeah. stuff. Yeah, early, like gr- early
0: proto grunge.
1: Proto grunge. They came out with the second one, which had, you know, patience and a lot of acoustic album, acoustic work on it.
0: I I guess for me, it, it seems like R.E.M. had some. It was just sort of a thing. And like, gosh, what does EP even stand for? There was LP, which is an album. I that's which. actually
1: a good question. I don't know what EP stands for. It, it's some, yeah, I just know EP means like some like much shorter crap that you put out because you didn't have a full album. Right. That's how, it's, that's let's, how I read let's it. Say, let's say
0: it's five tracks, which reminds yeah. me of something. Gosh, what am I thinking about? <laughs>
1: Maybe season two for us? Season (laughs) two for
0: us was, yeah, that was your joke, uh, which was hilarious, (laughs) that that was an EP. EP. Well, and the other funny bit is EPs for these bands were often, it was sort of B-sides. Actually, you too had an EP, uh, the album Seven. Do you remember that? And it was big because it was only for sale on Target. It was sort of a promotional (laughs) So, like, Target had exclusivity. That so, so silly now. <laughs> I know. Back when U2 and Target were really big.
1: Well, and the fact that you can just download it or it
0: streams on Pandora, you know, it's like... Man, the world has changed so much, yeah. But uh, an EP would be, like, B-sides, because the old records had a side A and side B, so the B-sides that weren't on the albums, or it was uh, garage recordings or extra recordings or different versions, so it was kind of the odd stuff they shoved in there, or things they discovered later. Which is funny for us because we've lost some of our recordings.
1: We have lost, yeah. One was destroyed because of my, uh, I glitched it on the recording into a computer. The other was just lost. You know, somebody will find it one day. There's mythical,
0: yes, yes, the genius there that has been lost. One of our
1: four fans will discover it after we're gone (laughs) and play it.
0: And theorize on its meaning. Have Have you read The Handmaid's Tale? No. It's a TV show on Hulu that got all those Emmys but it's a famous book from the late 80s, Margaret Atwood. Atwood, okay. It's really, really interesting for all sorts of reasons, but it's basically a violent theocracy, takes over America and does this Old Testament-type law. But the interesting bit is at the end, it's several hundred years in the future, and it's scholars debating the authenticity of the actual story itself. It's kind of cool. It's like a fast-forward later, which reminded me, did you ever see um, AI, the... Stanley Kubrick movie that Steven Spielberg finished? Yes. Remember that ending had a similar thing, like the robot is discovered much later and they're trying to figure out what it means, like he's at the bottom of the ocean or something like that?
1: Yeah, he waits for, uh, it's uh,
0: Alien Life comes and finds him. Alien Life, is, that's what it was. Yeah. And they discover him. And so, yeah, there's that weird bit of the work of scholars, which is debating what something means when they've lost its surroundings.
1: Yeah, there's a, uh, what's the, is the Romance of the Rose? the, the Or the Rose... Oh, who's the Italian? The name of the rose. Yes. Uh, uh The movie. The, and yeah, the, that's very similar.
0: You know, I only saw the movie, but I think I did see that referenced that later it, it itself comments on itself, basically.
1: Yeah, it's it's later people. Refer, yeah, it was the semiotics, which is the guy's whole thing. It's how do you understand meaning when you're out of that context? That's interesting, though. I, I have not seen that. i didn't even heard of it. Yeah, i hadn't heard of it.
0: Big Emmy no. winner. Yeah, really interesting. And it's where there's a declining birth rate. And so society, it's globally, and I think in the it kind of hints that it's an environmental cause, but that leads to a civil war and a takeover in America and this religious regime. It's kind of all about totalitarianism and things and religion.
1: There's a lot of that coming out. There's a lot of that. There's the one about the Nazis. If the Nazis had won. Yes. Um,
0: that's a good, it that's, that's, Amazon. A, that's an Amazon, Um Yeah. The uh, the man
1: in the high tower, high tower, which is a which is an old actually an old story. It's from the fifties, I think. Yes, um, Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick, yeah,
0: yeah. It's a, uh, like a short
1: story. Doug Hume
0: read it. Actually, was talking about it. I need to read it.
1: Apparently, I mean, people that are way deep into this type of genre, most of the sci fi plots that we think are so unique and new and things, are the work of like four or five main. Voices and writers from that period. Philip K. Dick is one of them. Mm-hmm. So, who's the guy that did all the Alien movies? Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott did it first, and then James. Ridley Tanner. Scott. Yeah, Ridley, Ridley Scott. Scott. Ridley Scott. So, Ridley Scott had a uh, on the Science Channel. This is years ago, probably about five six years ago. Ridley Scott had a thing where he was. It was this kind of noir documentary where he's sitting at a table like coloring. I kid you not. He's like drawing with markers, uh, and he's apparently a good artist. But he's drawing all these these images of sci-fi movies and plots and they do like descriptions of certain themes from like Philip K. Dick and he describes how like the totalitarian one is from him or something and the Blade Runner story comes from one of these guys that he took and adapted the whole idea of technology and if it becomes so human, more human than human as the Blade Runner story commented on. So it's this idea that there's only so many sci fi plots that are all lenses into ourselves right. or lenses into where we're going. That's the main trope there. But that the stuff we think is so new, like Man in the High Tower or something about a totalitarian regime, it's been commented on since, you know, the forties, fifties and sixties. Yeah, that's right. Um, anticipating where things are going,
0: but also they're really writing about the present. Uh, I think it was Warren Ellis they are, yeah. is, is, was the first one to that I knew that said that, although I think it's an old idea, that science fiction is really about the present. It's just in the guise yeah. of the future, as you're saying. So they're seeing the trends
1: then, and, and they're noting it. Which is funny, because you wouldn't say that about historical fiction. Very often historical fiction is about, hey, let's let's go to a time when things are so different. The, at least the, the, yeah, yeah, the connections to the present. It's, it's really interesting. That is weird because that, that historical fiction is really... Escapism almost.
0: Yeah. I mean, you still there's still certain assumptions and ideas and interests at work, but yeah, you're right. It really isn't so much about the present as... as and weirdly, it's more escapist than science fiction.
1: Or if it's about the present, it's more what we've lost. So... The Master and Commander movie that came out in the two thousands. I remember some folks were reading that back then. It's just it's a long series of books. uh, The first of which I think is Master and Commander. I tried to read it. It's very very dense. The jargon is very much from whatever I think it's from the nineteenth century back then, and it's just very very deep into that world. And everyone's far more heroic (laughs) than you ever expect to find in the modern world. That kind of thing. It's nostalgia. At at some level, but a fake nostalgia. It's not a real, it's not, you know, the people back then were not more perfect than we are now in that ultimate sense. They're the same people. Just the stories have been washed with that heroism. Right. Makes me think of
0: the classic Twilight Zone episode. The guy wants to go back to the good old days and his wish is granted and he then has to realize all the stuff he forgot, like not having plumbing or running water or the stairs and not having elevators. So, yeah, we we always medicine, medicine, yeah, yeah, painkillers. So, yeah, it's interesting, the nostalgia that's always at work.
1: Yeah, I do tell students at some point you have more medicine in like your local CVS or Walgreens than most human history has ever. Wow! <laughs> you know, I mean, and if you a, think about, it, I, mean, I yeah. mean, even something as simple as Advil is is a luxury. If you had a headache in the 1500s, what are you going to do? Just sleep it off. You, yeah. you, you can't do anything really. Hit um, yourself in the head with a brick. Chew that opium leaf that just came over from the New World. That's about it. Right, a whole different world.
0: Well, the EP and uh, thinking about our second season and Segway bell ding ding ding. We had scheduling snafus. We had technical difficulties. We had. A few many disasters. You had a flood. I had a flood. You had a yeah. flood. Not not personally, but in the city. In yeah. the city. You had Yes, the city flooded. Still hilarious to me that I pictured you sort of on top of the roof, Just yeah. having written <laughs> "Save Me" on on the top of the. And in reality, you were at home just watching Netflix, but because uh, you I'm were just, totally yeah, fine. I didn't even lose power. Yeah. Didn't even lose power, which is the key. And. uh So all those things led to a brief season two for 2017. But another issue is you were embroiled in writing not one, but two books. So I want to hear a little more about that. I know, especially in the past, you said you wrote by longhand. And so I guess I want to know about the books and the process. So tell me a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, I did write longhand this time as well. I mean, this time at the very end, so from about October until second week, or the first week, I should say, of January, so not that long ago, was just kind of a blistering pace, mainly in terms of editing. So what happened was I had a project that was just me that I had been working on for a couple of years. By working on, I mean just, you know, thinking up the idea, slowly pitching it to the publisher, working out chapter ideas, that kind of a thing, really kind of big picture that about a year and a half ago got lighted, got accepted. And that was a book called The Story of Creeds and Confessions. And the book was pitched very similar to one of our favorite books, which is Church History in Plain Language. Mm-hmm. It's that writing style, at least. And ideally, it's it's meant for kind of a, a, a collegiate audience or above reading level. If there's any jargon, you try to explain it, that kind of thing. And as the title suggests, it's looking at creeds and confessions, but not simply the few creeds from the early church and the the few confessions from the Reformation, but rather kind of telling church history from the vantage of the church gathering to define itself in various localities. So, mm-hmm. Nicaea, so instead of great people, great books, it's it's big documents that have shaped, frankly, that some churches still say in their worship today, and that came out of teaching. I, I recognized when I was doing Reformation that I could say, okay, there's Protestantism, big big P, you know, kind of a big umbrella, Protestantism. But people were really interested in, okay, what, what's the difference between a Methodist and a Calvinist, or between a Lutheran and a Baptist, or they wanted to know those more finer details. And often, just simply the biographies of the leaders of these groups wasn't enough, But when you held out their confessional standards, you say, look, you know, Luther has this view of the sacraments, so Lutheranism does. Methodists have this, and so therefore Wesley did, therefore the Methodists have this view. So anyway, long story short, I put that book together. I then realized very quickly, you have to do this every now and again, that I am not prepared to write patristic theology and creedal stuff. There's, <laughs> there's that moment <laughs> where you're He's like, like, oh, wait a minute. Ooh, that is a deep rabbit hole. And here's, here's the trick, which I think our, our audience will find interesting. Not just the writing of it, but writing simple things is harder than writing a more complex one. Yes. Because you have to, at every sentence, stop and say, how do I say this without saying too much? If I say something, do I have to stop and define it? It's like a hiccup. Every sentence, every every adjective is well. You know, do I want to keep this very simple? You know, I'm writing this for everybody,
0: and especially because grad school makes us so nitpicky that you y- you don't know the basics and you're trained to define everything and cite everything. Yeah. But that's yeah. a terrible book and, and horrible book. Yeah, and so yeah, you really have to fight your training in a sense. But part of it, I think, is growing as a, a as a writer and a scholar is. Knowing which parts you don't have to define. Once you know the lay of the land, then you kind of know like everybody knows this, or this is an old fight, or I don't even care about this. So I'm not going to worry about it. This is what I'm going to emphasize because I don't have to prove myself anymore. Right.
1: It was causing a headache at the editing level. So Mm. it was no problem writing all that out, but it's at every point, it's like, okay, am I going too far on this? And then a friend of mine helped conceptualize it. He just said, at every page, at everything you're typing, you have to be both author, editor, and audience at the same moment. Oh wow, that's good. I was like, it was like, was like, that is my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Is I, I every moment I'm going, am I a college student like I was, who knows nothing, and I'm tired of everyone assuming I know five things I don't. And that, so that that was a a process in the editing phase that was a challenge. So I threw in the towel about. Uh, About a little over a year ago, so it was actually December of, I guess that would be sixteen. And as fate would have it, um, one of my colleagues out out of our Charlotte campus of Gordon Conwell, Don Fairbairn, is hey hometown hero North Carolina. That's right. He's not just a patristic scholar. He his field that he did his doctorate in Cambridge as well. His field is in the creeds and Christology and Trinity. Perfect. And so he and I were just chatting about something else and. He made a passing comment that he wishes he had a, a, a popular way of saying some of these things that people sometimes misunderstand. And I just said very bluntly, do you want to take half of my book? <laughs> Can you please take half of this with me? And uh, what began as a single volume by me, very simple, became a, a joint book between he and I now, which we are sending off to the publisher on Monday, finally. Wow. My, my side's done. He's doing a one last read-through right now. And it's, it's enormously better for, for him having been on it. I Half the stuff he's talking about, even at a very simple level, I didn't know about. And, you know, it, it makes sense. He's the patristics up to the Middle Ages. I then grab the baton and take it to the modern era. So is it clear who wrote what, or did you try to smooth it out and everything's... As it cute? turns out, he and I write very similarly, and he was an English major at Princeton. Hmm. And so his editing skill was in helping it it, it reads like one person wrote the whole thing, or okay. as if we somehow m- mimicked the same voice. I, I think it would take a very, it, it would take a savant level <laughs> reader to figure out like where Ryan takes over at some point because it's very f- seamless. We, th- at least we think the the editor agreed. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. We, it was it was hard to do, but we we both tended we w- we both wrote very plain style to begin with. We're not very you know. Abstract in our concepts or our terms, and then he helped smooth it out to to the end. I use the Um, ethics book by Ben Quash
0: and Sam Wells. Uh, They have an ethics textbook that's really good. And some of the chapters are very schematic, like there are three parts or there are three arguments with three sub arguments, and some chapters aren't. And I've never asked them or never because I see Ben Quash at, at AAR. Uh, but my guess is the ones that aren't a schemat schemat schematized the uh the ones that aren't don't have a scheme and a, a real tight three parts to them or something or or you know numbered outline positions that's Ben quash is not the schematic writer yeah, yeah and yeah. sam wells is that's my guess but i don't know but since i've read it eight times now because i've been using it for so long these questions lurk the other famous one is stephen king and peter straub co-wrote a book i forget the title oh, yeah. of it. something with a train on the cover i think i read hmm. it long ago but supposedly they actually it has different styles and sometimes they're writing in the other person's style is a bit of a joke like stephen king oh. is writing like peter straub would have written that chapter See, that's,
1: that's a skill level,
0: yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So it's intentionally uneven. Uh, they didn't try to hide it. It doesn't have, they don't indicate Chapter 2 by Stephen King. It's just that it's kind of bumpy on purpose. And so you there don't know There was a Tarantino
1: movie like that where four, like three or four directors direct a portion of it. And, yeah, um, Sin City. Did he do something in Sin City? I, it was before that. It was right when Tarantino was first coming out, and it, it was like four rooms or something like this. Oh, so I do title vaguely like remember. I didn't see it, but I vaguely remember that. Like a hotel or something. Yeah. It was all supposed to be b- based like that, like four different styles. Hmm. The other thing was we just happened to write very similarly. The other piece was he had written his half before I started editing and compiling and putting mine into a written full full written word format. So I, had, I was able to notice, OK, he does begin his chapters this way. I can begin that way as well. I noticed he was more prone to giving a couple of schematic things like, OK, you know, here are four issues that are going to come up. And then he, he goes through and lists them mm-hmm. uh, throughout the chapter. So I was able to mimic that. Uh, it's, it's incredibly awkward, though. Thankfully, it wasn't that way for us. But it can be incredibly awkward when you have two academics working on the same thing because... Style is usually never brought up as a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, people go, "Well, he doesn't write; he's not the best writer, but he has good things to say, etc." But when you're writing with somebody, you don't want to be like, "Hey, I don't like that. Can we, you know, you, you split your infinitives, Ben Quash. Can you please stop that?" You know, no one's going to do that to each other. You know, right? That's really tough. Uh, that happens in church.
0: Are you, if you're at a church with multiple pastors, do you cre- critique each other's sermons? Or just never talk about it. And that's an issue for a lot of pastors. Yeah. because no, I, I, some... I've been
1: asked that before, yeah. yeah. I, I thought somebody said, the senior pastor once said to me, not at my church, but somewhere else, he said, oh, I didn't like this sermon. How would you suggest that I critique him as a younger person? And I said, well, I said, I didn't hear it. I, I can't tell you. I said, you might want to start with, so t- why don't you tell me what you thought were the places you could improve? Right, right. <laughs> I just <laughs> gave him that. The old punting little, move. Because it is awkward.
0: Yeah. It it's, is very it's awkward. It's very exposing. And and to, yeah, some guys I knew at one place, they just said, we will never discuss each other's sermons. Like, we don't yeah. don't say anything good or bad. We're just going to keep it off the table. And others might really want to say, all right, give me some feedback. So it depends on the relationship
1: yeah. and the person. Um, I think the best I've seen off the top of my head is, they pre-debate how, they're gonna, how they would approach a sermon. Like on a Monday before the week, they know that Pastor A is doing the sermon, but there's one or two other pastors. They'll gather and say, okay, you know, I, I read the text. Here's my instincts is to look at this, this, and this, but really only say this one point. This is my main point, and then the others will say, "Yeah, I thought about that, but what about this?" And they'll they'll preach you uh, mm. over the 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 way they would a- approach it, but then when they get to the end of the week and whoever preaches, they no one says a word. It's like okay, like mm. you know, he, he made his choice. But so in other words, pre critique is uh, was a way that people could get around that I've seen, which which worked very
0: well. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that um, sort of goal setting almost like did I achieve what I thought I was going to. Interesting.
1: And it's not as scary when you're, when it's still yet to be preached or, or it's still off in the horizon. Yeah. So you had to worry
0: about style issues. You had to, or not worry, but that was, you know, on your your radar screen and you were concerned with material and expertise. And I I love that idea of finding someone to help because that happens academics all the time. That was part of Cambridge was, I need to go talk to this person to get more information on yeah. this, because I don't know where to start about Augustine or or whatever, or the Council of Trent. So you've got people you can go ask, like, what book should yeah. I read or explain this to me? Or how would this relate to that? Or is someone written on this topic? Um, and, and it's hard when you're on your own.
1: Well, and a few people were surprised that I gave, I mean, it was a big project as a, for a, for a frankly, first book, dissertation had been published, yes, but this is first appropriately priced book for everybody to buy. Put it that way, not one hundred and twenty dollars. But for the for first book, I mean, it was it's a four hundred pager, so it, it's it's a it, it, it has a lot of umph to it, and you know, it's with Baker, it's a great publisher, wonderful first book, really. And people were surprised that they gave up half of it. Gave up? What do you mean? Gave up half of it? Well, like I I, I brought in a co-author. Oh oh. So versus just asking for some books and doing it myself, and you know, let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why that I – mean, that never really occurred to me. I, I wanted the book to be as good and as helpful as possible. And if that meant that I don't – if I shut up and let the patristics person talk, then mm-hmm. then so be it. Um, I, I, that was always my instinct.
0: Well, the secret of – one of the many secrets academics is there are some amazing egos in the room. So I can imagine many people – just kind of the ego of the scholar, you just don't want to share, yeah, unless you know you're the corner store kind of like you know yeah. you're the corner at this at the uh at the mall, so sometimes you'll see a big name with a co-author because they don't really care at that point right but but other right. than that, yeah, I can see people not wanting to share the glory but but you're right that in service of the material in the book, you should totally do what the book needs.
1: Yeah. And I think because it began as a pedagogical book, like how can I help students understand the history of theology? I was more thrilled to have somebody that would actually explain patristic theology better. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, the the later ecumenical councils that debate icons and all the stuff that Protestants, like we stop after Chalcedon, Mm -hmm. (laughs) our conversations. He had all these chapters where he just very quickly walks through that stuff. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Uh, this, is, this is enormously helpful. Is that all the
0: that, that iconoclastic controversies? 800-ly? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's all I know about them. I just know that they existed. So, yeah, that would be really interesting because that definitely comes back. Those topics. Yeah. Puritans and all that.
1: And the East-West Schism, I mean, the Fairbairn, the, the co-author of me, had been a professor and a missionary in Romania. So he has good familiarity with modern Orthodox folks. He was able to add so much to the book that I never would have been able to add myself, and so I think the book was better for mm-hmm. it. It also, though, led to a problem, which was I, I said yes to a second book <laughs> at the same time, which was dumb. Well, how did that happen, Sunshine? Well, well, this is the other lesson you learned. This is um, the first book was four hundred pages, give or take. How many words? Uh, I think it's around one hundred seventy thousand. Yeah, I
0: was going to guess. I think yeah. eighty thousand is usually
1: about two hundred pages, so. Yeah.
0: So it's right around there. Wow. And I gave up. So you, wrote, you really wrote a full book. If you wrote 80,000, that's commonly a book, as I've understood it. So by writing half of 170,000, you wrote a book. That's You right. didn't write 40,000. Wow.
1: I was supposed to write all of that, and so I gave up half of it, at which point a friend uh, uh, who has a, a series with Zondervan, an a, a, even more uh, basic series— called No, the No series, K-N-O-W. He had seen a blog I had done on the anniversary of the Erasmian New Testament, where I said, you know, here's why it's important. We knew very little Greek and all. just kind of like quick stories for everybody.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And he just said, you know, it'd be neat to have a, a history of the Bible that looks at it as a history of a, a physical book, you know. Right. And he said, you stand in front of a Sunday school and you hold up a leather-bound volume that book is, that's a very unique version of a Bible that has not been the way the Bible has been produced for most of its history. And he said, you know, those onion skin pages, the paper that that's, that's very hard to pull off just in terms of technology. He said, it'd be great to see a a history like that. And he said, you know, a a real simple 130, 140, maybe 150 pages uh, of a short little book for very beginner lay audiences, people that are not even pursuing degrees and here's my dumb thinking i said okay well in my head i've given up a large portion of one big book and i can say yes to a much shorter simpler book on the history of the bible that it's called how we got the bible will be its title it's basically saying okay let's talk about how the vulgate was created let's talk about the apocrypha let's talk about luther's bible the kjv very very it's sort of one-hit chapters, you know, the Wycliffe Bible and his critique, just basic stories. In my head, I thought, well, okay, I gave up a big chunk. I'm saying yes to a, a much smaller number of pages to be added, and it should be no big deal. <laughs> wow yeah, That's how all bad Ryan stories start. Bad <laughs> <That> Ryan story. <laughs> what happened was I didn't account for the fact that writing two different things is very, very taxing because... You get into a groove when you're writing and working on one piece. And then to switch, it, it, it could create a challenge, which is your, it takes you a little more time to build up steam when you're editing that piece. So I had two mountains of handwritten materials that I was ready to edit into these books. Needless to say, by the end of December, the beginning of January, I was pulling some all-nighters <laughs> to, wow. to finish the editing. Because it was, it was mainly the judgment calls. Okay, what, what remains? What goes out? What do I want to keep? What, you know, I need to whittle this down. You'll be happy, though. I do start the Bible book with a um, Abbott and Costello reference. Oh, that's which is, good. That's good. Good way to. It's the who's on first piece. Mm-hmm. I, I tell this, I say, who's on first? You know, obviously the joke is Abbott doesn't understand the jargon or else he'd, he'd get the, the point. And, you know, a lot of these things about even the word apocrypha, no one knows what that means at a basic first level in Sunday school. So here's a short little book on it so that's
0: good that's a good opening draw them in draw them in yeah and and going back to this idea of of pitching the book you really do want to figure out who the audience is and and what assumptions you can make and what you know you want it to be a book that they're going to enjoy it's going to draw them in and um you know it's it's really you want to be aggressive in a little way but not annoying so yeah the tone is really important and and the books I've enjoyed had the right tone. They had the right feel. In fact, going back to Shelley's uh, Church History in, in plain language, I used that again last semester, and students really liked it. It's funny. Yeah. I get I, I get the best feedback of any book I use is that one. They're like, you know, I, I'm surprised how much I enjoyed the top, and it's Church History. You know what, a snoozer. Yeah. But Um, sorry, no offense, you know, but no, take but it, you know, it can be Screw if you get bogged. <laughs> Well I, well, I discuss fantasy stories and literature. Uh, it's so easy for church history to get bogged down in the dates and the, the, the technical things. And I yeah. think of Harry Potter, there's that one, I think it was a history of wizardry professor that died, but his ghost just keeps going back to class. Do you remember that? One of their teachers is <laughs> right. a ghost because he just won't, yeah. he just doesn't know he's dead. And, uh, yeah. you know, history is so invigorating and it's so crucial, but it's so easy to
1: make it dry.
0: And, yeah, very and, much. And
1: uh, well, and this book was great too. It, it was even more of that exercise of I'm writing a book, for example, or writing a chapter on the the Old Testament. I mean, there are people that write 800 page volumes on that, and this isn't my expertise. But at some level, it was very freeing because I didn't have to care right. what the person who's writing an 800 page book will say. What are you going to say? I wrote 10 pages, <laughs> you know. Oh, well, you didn't say enough. Well, duh. But I'm saying something – what's the audience? I'm saying something – I'm truly thinking of my wife and my kids standing in front of a bookshelf of all the the 17 English versions of the Bible that we now have, mm-hmm. and probably more than that, and them wondering, why do we have so many? And that's an interesting story. So I was just mainly on that piece and not trying to write a scholarly argument about X, Y, and Z. And you always end up, I think, at the end writing a book that you – Kind of always wish had been written when you were around as a kid or a student right. or a beginner, and I think that's what this is. It's kind of like all the interesting stories that I wish I had known at the beginning.
0: Yeah, because there's these great stories and and great concepts, and it, it, it's very hard to make it simple and lively. But that's the challenge given certain types of book. I mean, we need the we need the 800 page introduction to the Old Testament. We do. But we also need the the book that sees it in a larger conversation and part of a larger movement, and, and like you said, it's it's harder to write the simpler book. Uh, it, it's it would be much easier to write something on one verse or to write, you know, a big novel on something. Whereas you try to write a short story or you try to write a simple, you know, what is faith? What is you know very simple things
1: we take for granted, yeah. and yeah. uh, that's it, it's
0: much trickier than we think.
1: I found, you'll, you'll appreciate this, very Tolkien-esque, I found an old Anglo-Saxon riddle, because that's where Bilbo and Gollum do riddles in the dark. It's actually an Anglo-Saxon thing to tell these riddles. Hmm. And one of them, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but it, it said, who am I? I was killed by my enemy. My skin was stripped from my body. I was beaten until the hair came off of my skin. I, th- I was then tickled with a with a bird's feather, wrapped up in beautiful gold. Uh, and something like this. It was just like this long. It was like a much more detailed riddle. And of course, the punchline is you're a Bible. You're, you you had to mm. strip the skin off an animal and this whole thing. And I, it was a wonderful little intro after the Abbot Castello thing because I was able to say for an Anglo-Saxon person living in the Middle Ages, that's how they would conceive of a Bible. You have to kill an animal, take its oh, skin. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's do all interesting. These and then I, I said, I said we could almost update this now. I said, you know i was I was an evergreen tree, I was pulped, you know, squashed and mashed until I was onion thin and I did this whole thing about you know obviously a physical book, <laughs> and then I had one I said, or in the twenty first century we can update it it would say i'm a i'm a series of zeros and ones i <laughs> right. I do not exist in any <laughs> right. time and space right. uh I admit a blue light that keeps you awake at night, and I wish my kids would put you you wish your kids would put me down at the, at the dinner table. Uh, it was some little joke I made or something. That's funny. But it's true. I yeah. mean, you think about it just from the physicality of it. It's it's so different. And I think that was the where the story came from. Yeah.
0: And, and now as I'm aging, in my eyes, I'm starting to – I don't quite need reading glasses, but I can see the benefit. Like I can get by without them, but if I put them on, I'm like, whoa, this is so much better. Yeah. And I, I see the benefit of the Kindle or the iPad because you can make the font bigger. And yeah. if you're reading one of these Brandon Sanderson-type novels – it's so yeah. much better not have to lug a 800-page book around. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, very much. You know, it's just so nice to have it right there on your phone, and you can read it in the waiting room or something. But, yeah, the that, I never really thought of how books in the Middle Ages, it really was a visceral type of killing. It's like, you know, if you yeah. wanted to eat chicken in the Middle Ages, you had to, or, you know, up until just probably 50 years ago, you had to yeah. cut the head off and pluck the feathers yeah. and all that. That's, I mean, that's grapes and that's that's great of wrath, were. yeah. Yeah. And um and we don't have that connection to the book being a real physical thing,
1: so that's well and people sometimes this is sort of a Protestant trope is to say well no one read their Bible in the Middle Ages and it's like the cost of a Bible was this the size of a medium to large sized house mm-hmm. it took somewhere in the neighborhood of of a five hundred to a thousand animals depending on what size animal huh. to get just enough pages to make a Bible. They would, uh, the other thing that's is, is interesting is we think of the Bible as one volume, but for most of history, they were multi-volumes because thicker pages means you can't bind that much up at once. Right. So they would have like the, it, w- it was usually the octateuch, the uh, Genesis through Ruth would be bound together and then the rest of the Old Testament uh, narratives, and then the prophets, et cetera, et cetera. And you would have these, you know, you would say, what volume am I going to pull down? Which we don't ever really think of. Um, and that had to impact your reading because it's not as if you could flip easily
0: between the yeah. volume. I mean, you could, but yeah. it sort of invited you to read, I would think, Genesis to Ruth in, in a certain context because it's right yeah. there in front of you.
1: Huh. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, the West actually re, re, um, rearranged the ordering of the Jewish canon. So the Jewish right. canon was arranged chronologically usually. So Ruth was actually towards the end. Uh, as well as Chronicles and some of the other books, Daniels at the very end, they then got reshuffled to their chronological time. So Chronicles and Ruth get moved up to the uh, earlier portions of the Old Testament to just fit there because, okay, that makes more sense in that volume to read it there. Right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very straight. I mean, I think that's the stuff that got me on the second book idea. Hmm. But that is in – thankfully, that's that's almost done as well. That's already come back from the publisher – with edit ideas, suggestions, and wow, that was fast. It's already back. Uh, that'll be out in September. I was told uh, some sometime around then. So hmm.
0: but that's a short little guy. Ah, and I I tease you about your nerdery, and I partly do that because I'm one too. But I find it interesting that you don't you're not using some application or anything to sort of track. Or I mean, there's you can yeah. go
1: real deep on tagging, and I really want to. I think what ends up happening is. Well, there's two things that I think I, I... Here's a good way of thinking about it. So what did I learn in these processes? Because when you're doing a dissertation, you're just trying to survive. Right. Let's, let's just be honest. Two things. One is I really want to spend probably a good year or two just on my own on the side working on grammatical complexity, mm-hmm. like like the good complex grammar. I've always approached grammar as what not to do. Don't split infinitives. Mm-hmm. Don't you know leave dangling modifiers, that kind of thing. But... Working with Fairbairn on this first book, you know, he's an English major f- uh, from his younger days, just noticing that he he always says, you know, people know what not to do, but they don't always think, why do I positively choose this style and mm-hmm. to write in this way? And that then makes judgment calls on how you do transitions between paragraphs and things. And it just kind of inspired me to think, I'd like to, to, to do, do, do a little bit more of that mm-hmm. type of analysis. The other is what you're, exactly what you're saying, which is some software opportunities I think that that would have been fine. I, I never I never hit any snags where I was you know spending hours on footnotes because I was behind. But things like tagging it, table of contents, things like that, like very simple. For example, I have Note to Benny. I just haven't used it. Hmm. <laughs> <It's a> classic, <laughs> funny, um, yeah. So I think I think the other thing is that I don't ever want to pitch a book and not have at least a couple of chapters sketched in my head or, or written out by hand. Because the book always ends up becoming somewhat different than you thought it would be. Right. And I I would like to be able to pitch it more as what it will be than – and that would take some little more more effort on the front end. Right. It it shifts from
0: being – I mean it's always – the proposal is always a bit of work of fiction. But at least it's more of historical fiction if you've got some of the chapters written. Like you kind of know what's going to happen instead of it being a a leap in the dark that then you – end up shifting somehow. So wow. And it sounds like both books are really about Christianity as kind of a textual religion, which it is. That yeah. that it, that it, it's a it's a religion that has defined itself in creeds and words and kind of meetings and agreements and and honing on the language
1: and, and then also around a, a book that's been bound. There's a physicality, I think that's probably the theme for my year. There's a physicality to it because I think historically one of the things I hate the kind of disembodied mind approach. This, you know, what is what is the Lutheran synthesis of theology? I think that's an important question, but I care more about the the belching German <laughs> <in> <laughs> Wittenberg who comes up with that along the way. Mm-hmm. And I always despise the Calvin biographies where he was kind of you know writing the Institutes from birth. You know, always conceptually thinking in four four books. You know, kind of the idea. Right. I, I I I like Wart and all so. I found that the history of confessions and creeds actually brought in a, sub- a sober look at doctrine and expression of theology that does change over time and changes its focus, but which has a warts-and-all picture. I mean, the Council of Nicaea with Constantine and all the kind of you know drama there, I mean, that, that, that's a warts-and-all picture, but what what Nicaea says is important as well to think about. So yeah, and then the, yeah, the physicality of the Bible book. I guess I just thought that that would be an interesting story.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, oh, yeah. I, back to
0: the councils, I was surprised, I learned just a couple of years ago, that some of those councils, we don't have the records from them. Like, we have, I yeah. guess, the creed, but what what actually... And it, it kind of makes sense that it was a long time ago, and paper was expensive, and they didn't have a stenographer. But it's also weird that these vital councils, we really... Um, it's kind of like not having original copies of the Bible itself. We have copies of copies, yeah, and and yeah. it's kind of weird, but then it makes a lot of sense that that's how God works is through history and event. And so it it's never just falling out of the sky perfectly
1: formed. Right, exactly. And, you know, th- things that come out of this book is, you know, we think of Chalcedon as a creed, but it's actually not. It, it, it defies the term. It says it is a definition of of how to read Nicaea. And actually, that's how it describes itself. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the Nicene Constantinople full version of that is actually written down at Chalcedon. Hmm. So that's where we see it first, the records. But it's the same reason, though. Papyrus is very susceptible to damage and uh, decay. Yeah, also, they they just sometimes wouldn't write things down because they just assumed everyone already knew them. Huh. Which, uh-huh. Like, I, I students always come to me in Church History 1, and they say, what are the best ancient books on practical spiritual formation questions like you know maybe they're coming from a Wesleyan background or a holiness background they want to know like they want some spiritual devotion pieces and I'm like well, they don't really have any <laughs> they're like they don't have any I was like well they didn't really write it down they just did it I mean it, it was before spiritual literature had moved into devotional arenas yeah which comes with publishing and literacy yeah I
0: never really thought about yeah. that but that's right it requires the ability to publish cheaply and a literacy or else it doesn't exist. And, you know, we don't really, I don't think we understand what it's like to be in an oral culture, but I see it a bit yeah. with the kids, like kids can memorize things in a staggering level in cultures that were not literate. They were able to remember things in ways that we just, we don't understand because yeah. we write everything yeah. down. And as we've said, the the iPhone is your external brain. And so we're used to things having a recording outside of the mind, but, um, I think our minds probably can record more than we know. We just – we've lost it. Yeah.
1: Well, a a way of putting that is Luther's – the first Bible that Luther owned himself was his own Bible that he had translated. Hmm. The Bible before that would have been too expensive. But he also had the Psalms memorized because he had prayed and chanted through them Hmm. every every two weeks. It was the cycle. So that he had all this stuff in his mind far more than the fact that he did not own a physical Bible would suggest. Right, and you can see that in Saint Augustine. He just quotes scripture
0: incessantly because he's memorized it. He's not looking it up. I mean, he may be consulting occasionally, but in general, he just he just quotes it. And Wesley does the same thing. You know, he's yeah, on horseback yeah. and he ain't pulling out the Bible to check it. He's just like, uh, I, I I know this verse, and he just writes it out and keeps going. All right. Well, this this is great to be back for season three after after our after EP. season two EP. <laughs> Can't wait for the greatest hits. The greatest hits. Some podcasts do that. For the holidays with Christmas of end of the year, they, they do kind of a, a best of the year. I always delete them. I don't listen, but... Let's covenant not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know you've jumped the shark when that happens. Yeah. Best of. All right. Well, remember... Seven people like this episode. We thought this was hilarious. Yeah. Actually, my favorite thing, though, I have to say was... It was probably... I think it was season one, but the Netflix queue... Like what theologians would have in their Netflix queue. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I still think about that. That, 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 yeah. that was my proudest moment. proudest moment. All right. Well, remember to like us on the iTunes and uh, give us some ratings. And we're on Facebook. Spread the word.
1: See you soon. See you soon. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you.